for Good Morning Church family. For it is wonderful to see all all of you here this morning on what is the last Sunday in the month of March, which means then, church, that as we start chapter 6 this morning in the Gospel of Mark, that we've been officially working our way through this glorious Gospel for seven months already. I mean, time flies when you're having fun, does it not? Nevertheless, over the past four weeks, we've been focusing specifically on a section in the Gospel of Mark, where John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, has been showcasing to his readers the divine authority and sovereignty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this section, it began, church, really all the way back at the end of chapter 4, when Jesus Christ and his disciples set sail across the Sea of Galilee, only to then have a giant windstorm come upon them. To which Jesus Christ then, as we saw back in chapter 4, verse 39, he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace be still. And like that church, the wind ceased and there was great calm, therefore displaying the sovereignty of Jesus over the forces of nature. Nevertheless, when Jesus Christ then got off that aforementioned boat and made landfall in the country of the Gerasenes, A man then with an unclean spirit or with a legion of unclean spirits approached Jesus Christ. And the unclean spirits then, possessing the man, they begged Jesus Christ to let them enter into some pigs which were located on a nearby hillside, to which Jesus Christ allowed them to do. And thus the unclean spirits then, they came out of the man who they were possessing, and the man then who originally came to Jesus Christ, demon-possessed, naked, and out of his mind, was then seen at the end of this narrative, cleansed of his demons, clothed and now in his right mind as well, therefore displaying the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over that of the demonic. However, then, church, Jesus Christ came into contact with a woman who had a discharge of blood coming from her for 12 years. But by simply touching Jesus' garment, this once hemorrhaging woman then was instantly and completely then made well. To which Jesus Christ goes on to explain to her that it was not her superstitions that made her well, nor was it any kind of magic that made her well, nor was it the mere touching of Jesus' garment that made her well, but instead it was her faith church in Jesus Christ that ultimately made her well, therefore displaying the sovereignty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ over that of disease. And then finally, church, as we saw last week, a man by the name of Jairus came to Jesus Christ because he had a daughter who was sick and who then ultimately passed away. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ went to this man's house where the dead child was, and he, Jesus Christ, took her by the hand and said to her in verse 41, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And like that church, the little girl immediately then came back to life, got out of her bed and was instantly then made well, therefore clearly displaying here the sovereignty and the authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ church, even over death itself. And yet, Despite the sovereignty, 
And despite the authority that Jesus Christ was displaying to the world at this time, still not everyone at this time, church, was willing to receive Jesus Christ in faith, even those, church, who were quite familiar with him. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning, church, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christian, our familiarity with Jesus Christ, with his life, and with his gospel message should not cause us to doubt, but instead to only further believe. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. Christian, our familiarity with Jesus Christ, with his life, and with his gospel message should not cause us to doubt, but instead to only further believe. Therefore, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to Mark chapter 6, as this morning we will be looking specifically at verses 1 through 6. And if you're joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, please know that that is okay and that there are plenty of church Bibles located in the chairs in front of you this morning. Therefore, again, if you do not have a Bible with you, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles and to turn that Bible to page 841 and to join us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we are in the Gospel of Mark this morning, church, looking specifically at chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, where John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how wonderful it is this morning to be in your presence on your day with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to praise you and to worship you as our only holy God, praying to you this morning in the Spirit, giving our offerings to you this morning, this day. And Lord, now we get to sit and hear your word preached. Father, I pray that all that we do today 
is a glorifying and acceptable sacrifice to you, God, the perfect, the holy. Father, we thank you for giving us your word this morning. We thank you for sending your Son this morning, Jesus Christ, who was, is, and forevermore will be God in the flesh. Lord, let us not hear about the humanity of Jesus Christ or the humility of Jesus Christ or the meekness of Jesus Christ this morning and have it cause us to doubt that he really is the Son of God. Father, instead, let us as we hear about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, only drive us to further believe that He is the Christ and is the Son of God. Father, open our eyes and our ears this morning to this message. Soften our hearts to receive any conviction we need to receive. Father, help my lisping, stammering tongue as well. Help me, Father, to give this dear flock all that they need this morning, which is found in the Word of God, sufficient for us as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Christian, do not let Jesus' humanity cause you to doubt that He truly is the Son of God. Christian, do not let Jesus' humanity cause you to doubt that He truly is the Son of God. Verses 1 through 3, which read, He went away from there and came to His hometown, and His disciples followed Him. And on the Sabbath He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard Him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 1, church, he went away from there, likely referring to the region of Capernaum here, and he goes, verse 1, to his hometown, that being that of Nazareth. So we have a scene here, church, where Jesus Christ and verse 1, his disciples take about a 25-mile trip from Capernaum all the way out to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And as has been a pretty consistent practice of Jesus Christ throughout his ministry, when he finally reaches then his hometown of Nazareth, he begins then, as we see in verse 2, to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And when the people of Nazareth church here, Jesus Christ teach, well, quite simply, many were, verse 2, astonished, as in amazed and astounded and stunned and quite simply could not believe what they were hearing from Jesus Christ here. And again, this should not come as a surprise to us, church, since we have already seen in the Gospel of Mark specifically all the way back in chapter 1, verse 22, that when Jesus Christ teaches church, it leads to downright astonishment. However, church, simply because someone is astonished by Jesus Christ, or amazed by Jesus Christ, or even in downright all of Jesus Christ, that by no means means that they will also be willing then to receive Jesus Christ in faith as well. 
And I say that here because, as we go on to see in verse 2, that despite the amazement of many in the crowd here, the crowd also then, quite frankly here, begins to skeptically then, and cynically then, and even pessimistically then question that of Jesus Christ, asking things like, verse 2, for where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Now make no mistake here, church, for the people of Nazareth here, after hearing Jesus Christ teach and preach and about all the mighty works that he has done with his hands, they aren't denying here, as Daniel Aiken notes, that Jesus Christ was a knowledgeable teacher or that Jesus Christ was a wise preacher, or even that Jesus Christ had the power to do many mighty works with his hands, for that was most definitely not the problem here. But instead, the problem here, church, rested on the fact that they, the people of Nazareth, did not understand where exactly Jesus' impressive knowledge and wisdom and power was coming from. Or to put it another way, they did not believe that Jesus' knowledge and wisdom and power was ultimately of God, which becomes quite apparent here within the next line of questions, where the people of Nazareth ask, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they say this because these local townspeople knew full well, church, that before Jesus Christ ever left dear old Nazareth and got into this whole ministry thing, teaching before large crowds and doing all these crazy types of miracles, that he was, make no mistake about it, just a carpenter, as in just a craftsman, a tradesman, a handyman, a man, church, who quite simply made a living with his hands. And just a point of reference here, church, for in no way are the townspeople here saying that being a carpenter was a bad thing or an unworthy occupation, for that is most definitely not what they are saying here. But instead, what they seem to be saying here is that they knew that Jesus Christ never studied or was never educated, or was never formally trained by any of the local rabbis of that day, therefore did not, at least in their minds, possess the qualifications needed to teach or to preach in their respected synagogues at that time. Because in their minds, church, Jesus Christ was nothing more than a common man from a common town who possessed a very common occupation. And not only that, church, But as we also see here in verse 3, they also asked about Jesus, is not this the son of Mary? Likely implying here, church, as numerous commentators have pointed out, that they believe that Jesus Christ was an illegitimate child and that they are seemingly taking shots here, church, at Jesus Christ and at his mother Mary, quite simply for how they believe that Jesus Christ was scandalously conceived. 
For that seems to be the connotation, the meaning, and the implication here behind that very question from the very people, church, who grew up with Jesus Christ. The people who intimately knew, church, that Jesus Christ, verse 3, was the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, or in essence, who knew Jesus Christ so well that they knew his brothers and his sisters, his family, and his his mother, and not only that, church, but they also knew all about his childhood, his upbringing, his education, and even that of his everyday occupation. I mean, these are the people, church, who you would think would have been the happiest and the most likeliest and the most willing to receive Jesus Christ with open arms, and yet they absolutely do not. But instead, as the New Living Translation puts it in verse 3, they were deeply affected by him, and they refused to believe in him. And thus, because of that, church, I think we would do well this morning to make sure that we, too, do not fall into that same trap of unbelief or trip over that same stumbling block of offense concerning the humanity or the humble upbringing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as well. And that we do not church. Let the manger in Bethlehem cause us to doubt that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. Or let his livelihood as a carpenter cause us to doubt that he alone makes the way of salvation. Or let the fact that he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, or was nailed to a cross at Calvary, cause us to doubt that he didn't defeat sin and destroy death once and for all. But that we instead realize that Jesus Christ took on human flesh so that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that being the devil. Or as the fourth century theologian Gregory of Nonziansis put it, for although Jesus Christ began his ministry by being hungry, he is the bread of life. And although he paid tribute, he is the king. And although he wept, he wipes away our tears. And although he was sold for 30 pieces of silver, he redeemed the world. And although he was brought as a lamb to be slaughtered, he is the good shepherd. And although he even died, yet by his death, Jesus Christ destroyed the power of death. Therefore, although Jesus Christ did indeed, church, take the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of man, whereby he then grew up as a man, was tempted like a man, experienced pain like a man, got tired like a man, slept like a man, and even humbly died on a cross like a man. Do not, under any circumstance, Christian, let the fact that Jesus Christ had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 53 calls you to think that God the Father then didn't bestow on him the name that is above every name and that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians chapter 2, because the word Jesus Christ becoming flesh to live and to dwell amongst us was not, church, just a backup plan or some contingency plan or some, oh no, what do we do now type of plan, but instead the word Jesus Christ becoming flesh 
flesh to live and to dwell amongst us was always how God planned to defeat sin, to conquer death, to crush the serpent's head, and to destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, do not, Christian, let the humility of Jesus Christ, the meekness of Jesus Christ, or the true humanity of Jesus Christ keep you from believing in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But instead, let the beauty of the incarnation only drive you then, Christian, to further believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the Most High God. Which brings us to point number two, which is this. For no one is saved by simply being exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ, but instead salvation comes only to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, point number two, for no one is saved by simply being exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ, but instead salvation comes only to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Verses four through six, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives And in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus Christ, after teaching in the synagogue and after having the source of his wisdom and power and knowledge be questioned by those from his hometown, Jesus Christ then responds by saying in verse 4 that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And in short, what Jesus Christ seems to be acknowledging here, all while using a common phrase from the day, is that the people of Nazareth here did not honor him or receive him or respond to him in faith because, as the old saying goes, their familiarity with him naturally then led to their contempt toward him. And thus, just like the prophets of old who were mocked and despised and rejected, so too is Jesus Christ here following right in those very same footsteps by being questioned here and doubted here and rejected here as well. And furthermore, because of all their unbelief, Jesus Christ then, as we see in verse 5, could not do a mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now what Mark is not communicating here, church, is that Jesus Christ somehow lacked the power needed to do miracles in Nazareth, or that because the people of Nazareth did not believe in him, that their unbelief then kind of acted like some kind of kryptonite, which ultimately sapped Jesus Christ of his power and his ability to do miracles then, for that is not what John Mark is getting at here. But instead, as Walter Wessel puts it, since John Mark has made it a point throughout his gospel to display Jesus Christ routinely performing miracles when people came to faith in him, and because 
There is so little faith in Jesus Christ here in Nazareth at this time. This then should be perceived as a self-imposed limitation that Jesus Christ put on himself due to the climate of unbelief that was present all around him. And when he says a climate of unbelief here, church, he means it. Because it was a climate that was so filled with unbelief and disbelief and non-belief toward Jesus Christ that quite frankly, it caused Jesus Christ, verse 6, to marvel because of their unbelief. To literally marvel, church, at their unbelief. And if you are sitting there this morning thinking, hmm, that sounds like a really big deal, then you are 100% correct. Because what we are seeing here, church, is a picture of our omniscient and all-knowing and sovereign God, Jesus Christ, church, literally marveling here or being stunned here, astonished here, and downright aghast here at the unbelief present in his hometown of Nazareth. Likely because, church, these were the people who you would think that if anyone was going to believe in Jesus Christ, place their faith in Jesus Christ, and desire to be disciples of Jesus Christ, that it would be these very people, the people, church, who grew up with Jesus Christ, interacted daily with Jesus Christ, and who quite literally witnessed firsthand the sinless life of Jesus Christ. And yet, despite all that evidence, just smacking them in the face, they instead were content, church, to just harden in their hearts and to ultimately not place their faith in Jesus Christ. For as D.L. Moody writes, you cannot offer a man a greater insult than to tell him that he is a liar. And unbelief is telling God that he is a liar. For suppose a man said, Mr. Moody, I have no faith in you, for there is nothing that would wound a man more than to be told that you have no faith in him. For a great many today say that, oh, I have profound reverence and respect for God. Yes, profound respect, but not faith, which is a downright insult. Or suppose a person said, Mr. Moody, I have profound respect for you or a profound admiration for you, but I do not believe a word that you say. Well, then I wouldn't give much for his respect or adoration. In fact, I wouldn't give much for his friendship, for God wants us to put our faith in him. And yet that is the way a great many self-professing Christians talk, for some think that it is just a misfortune that they do not have faith. However, bear in mind that it is not just a misfortune, but it is also the damning sin of the world. Therefore, with all the evidence sitting right before you this morning, church, declaring to you on this day that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Will you then too, church, harden your hearts, stiffen your necks, and resist all the evidence that is smacking you right in the face this morning and end up just like the people of Nazareth who were consumed by their very unbelief? Or will you instead, church, In light of the virgin birth, 
in light of the incarnation, in light of the sinless life, the atoning death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, will you then, church, instead believe? Since salvation is only given to those who are not only exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who ultimately, church, believe. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, I want to begin with the non-Christian who was here first. Because non-Christian, make no mistake about it. For if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and are not placing your faith in Him alone to save you from your sins, then the only thing waiting for you on the other side of this life is the wrath, the justice, and the eternal condemnation that you deserve for your sin. However, non-Christian... If you do indeed here today confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then rest assured you can still be saved right here, right now, today. Therefore, let today be the day then, non-Christian, that you believe in the gospel message. That message being that Jesus Christ came into this world as truly God and as truly man in order to initially live for us, non-Christian, the life that we could never live. Meaning that although Jesus Christ was tempted by sin, just like you and I, non-Christian, Jesus Christ never, ever sinned, but instead lived a holy and righteous and sinless life here on earth, whereby he perfectly and completely then fulfilled the law of God, non-Christian, for the children of God, and he did it, non-Christian, without any kind of offense. However, not only did Jesus Christ then live the life for us that we could never live, but he also then, non-Christian, willingly paid the price for us that we could never pay. And that he, Jesus Christ, took our sins upon himself, non-Christian, and was crucified on a cross at Calvary and died a sinner's death in our place and as our very substitute, as the atoning sacrifice for our very sins. A sacrifice, non-Christian, that completely appeased the wrath of a holy God toward his sinful children. And thus, because Jesus Christ, then non-Christian, the sinless Son of God, was accepted by his Father God as a perfect sacrifice on behalf of the children of God, Jesus Christ, then non-Christian, could not be held down by death. And thus, three days later, Jesus Christ, then, he did not stay dead, but instead he rose from the dead, and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all, and he now offers eternal eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin and died for your sin and can clothe you then in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. For do not disbelieve any longer, non-Christian, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the Most High God, but instead only believe. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you are forgiven of your sin and given the gift of salvation and that of eternal life.
and to the Christian who was here today. Brother Christian, Sister Christian, I want to close with this. For as we saw clearly in our text today, it was those who were indeed, in a sense, the most familiar with Jesus Christ, who ultimately then decided to question Jesus Christ, to reject Jesus Christ, and to eventually then have Jesus Christ marvel at their unbelief. Therefore, in light of that theme, church, concerning their familiarity with Jesus Christ and in expanding on that concept, if you will, a little bit as well, being that we here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church are without a shadow of a doubt a church who preaches the gospel message each and every week, my question to you this morning then, Christian, is this, for has your familiarity then with the gospel of Jesus Christ maybe caused you then, Christian, to get a little bored with the gospel, maybe a little disinterested in the gospel, or maybe even searching for a little something more than just the same old gospel message preached to you each and every week. Because if that is you this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, maybe feeling a bit bored, or underwhelmed or fatigued by the consistent, never-changing, always and forever message of the gospel, then lovingly, Christian, let me tell you that the issue here is most definitely not with the gospel message, but the issue here, Christian, is most definitely with you. And that, for some reason, Christian, you must have forgotten that at one time you were indeed in love with your sin, unrepentant of your sin, and were completely dead in your sin, meaning that you were enemies of God, rejectors of God, and were deserving of eternal condemnation at the hands of your most holy God. And the only reason then, Christian, that you are not still dead in your sins and still storing up wrath for yourself because of your sin is not because of anything special you did or brought to the table, but instead it is only because God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved you, Christian, that even when you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive together with Jesus Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Therefore, if you are sitting there today, brother Christian, sister Christian, and you keep finding yourself, getting bored in hearing the same old gospel message preached to you each and every week, then please, Christian, realize, to borrow here, to expand here, and to elaborate here on a line from the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones here, that it is sin in a sense that always leads to a life of boredom, Christian, and not that of the gospel. Therefore, if sin is keeping you this morning, Christian, from tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and just how wonderful his gospel message truly is, then you need to repent, Christian, and you need to ask 
your God to snap you out of this malaise and to help you see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ more clearly, the love of your heavenly Father more deeply, and the gift of life everlasting more intimately. Because quite frankly, Christian, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ should never, ever, ever grow old or dull or boring to the heart of the redeemed, since it is the only message out there, Christian, that truly displays the power of God for salvation to everyone who ultimately believes. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body do not ever let our hearts become cold or our minds become numb to the beauty of the majesty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we preach Christ crucified each and every week, church, because as believers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to hear it every week, be strengthened by it every week, encouraged by it every week, and grow in our love for the mystery of it each and every week, since it is the only message that saves sinners from their very sins. Therefore, if any one of your children here today, Father, have grown bored with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then please call them to repentance today and help them see the weight of their sins, the atoning sacrifice of your Son, and the glory of his resurrection from the dead like never before. For Father, give us all here today a deeper understanding of what it means means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, so that we can all leave here today more in all of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who defeated sin, conquered death, and who destroyed the works of the devil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for your grace this morning. Help us, we pray, to be able to taste and see like never before how good this gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Father, help us dwell and meditate and try to fathom what it means that God would come into this world as truly God and as truly man to take on flesh to live and to dwell amongst us, to destroy the works of the devil, and to save us from our sins. Father, we are dead in our sins, not just sick in our sins or limping in our sins or have a glimmer of hope in our sins. We are literally dead in our sins. And it is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ through the grace that you have given us, God, that you bring us back to life and that we respond to that message in faith. Father, help us to grasp this morning, now and forevermore, the gift that we have of eternal salvation and the Son of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen.